0: Well, I want to say it's really a joy to worship with you this morning. Those were wonderful songs and prayers and scriptures that we read, timely and timeless. They they speak to our hearts at this moment and at any moment, and it was great to be part of that with you in your new facility. It's wonderful to be here. I've been in the gym when we worshiped there, and now I get to be here in this place, and it's uh, open and bright and accommodating more folks, and I think the Lord is going to use this church continuing ways to touch our community for christ so we share that and we are friends with you down at heritage we're just down the street and i'm so pleased uh, we have a number of our grads that are part of your staff team and leadership team Uh, pastor john and i get are actually teaching co-teaching a course right now on preaching so i love working with uh, him and and linda is friends with Lori. we We pray for you regularly, and we'll be a part of it. And I would just say, if you're looking for some specialized training, uh, we'd love to talk to you about how Heritage could serve this church by serving you. I, I like to tell people that at Heritage, we help you major in the Word of God so you can help your church make a world of difference. And so we'd like to train you because we believe that through the local church, The Lord has a plan for this community and beyond. So it's great to be here. You know, if you go to the cemetery in my wife Linda's hometown of Linden, Washington, which is just right below Abbotsford, B.C., if you go to the cemetery in her hometown and you walk around the gravestones, you'll eventually come to the one for her father, Garrett Honkoop. Who's buried there? But if you walk a little further, you'll come to three other gravestones among the many. You'll come to three of them of people who are named in this book. The book is called A Grace Disguised by a man named Gerald Sitzer. Dr. Sitzer wrote this book a few years after living through a horrific tragedy. In 1991 the minivan that he was driving was hit head-on by a drunk driver and the crash killed the drunk driver's wife who was in the front seat with him who was also pregnant the woman was pregnant so it killed two lives there and in the minivan the dr. Sitzer was driving the crash killed in one in one moment killed his wife his mother and one of his baby daughters named Diana Jane. And those three women, his wife, his mother, and his daughter, are all buried in the cemetery in Linden, Washington, where, where my wife, Linda's father, is buried. And he mentions that in his book. Dr. Sitzer says in the days that followed that accident, he was numb. Uh, it was just a time of unspeakable sorrow, unspeakable grief. But in time, he said, as the shock wore off, he began to struggle to try to make sense of what had happened. And as he did, he was faced with some pretty difficult questions. Questions like, where was God in the midst of all that? What is God possibly up to in this? You know, uh, what Dr. Sitz Dr. Sitzer writes about in this book, has some parallels with the book that you all are studying right now here at Temple, the book of Job. Because on one day, Job also went through unspeakable tragedy, didn't he? On one day, he lost all of his livestock and his livelihood. Sabean raiders, Chaldean raiders attacked his shepherds and and, and, uh, livestock keepers. They killed all of them, his servants, and they stole his camels, his donkeys, his oxen. And on that same day, that very same day, all his children, all ten of them, were gathered together in one house and were told that a great wind blew. The house came down, killing all seven of his sons and all three of his daughters. All on one day. And in the days that followed, he would lose his health. And all that Job went through wrecked him, didn't it? Understandably so we would we would say we understand why he would be wrecked by that and as the shock wears off he begins to speak and in the opening chapters of the book of job he begins to pour out his pain and lament his loss in chapter 3 we hear him say i wish i had never been born i wish i had died at birth but as the book goes on he begins to try to make sense of it all to try to make sense of his suffering And he begins to ask some hard questions.
1: Where was God in the midst of all of that? What could he possibly be up to? Now, I
0: would suspect that most of us here have not lived through anything of the level of trauma that Gerald Sitzer or Job lived through. But that doesn't mean that those of you gathered here haven't known great pain. That doesn't mean that you have not tried to wrestle and struggle to make sense of what's happened in your life and in the lives of people around you. So today as we go to God's Word, we're going to listen in and hear how Job tries to make sense of suffering. We're going to listen in as Job comes to some conclusions based on what he's lived through. And as we do, we're going to have to ask ourselves some questions, questions like, did he get it right? Are the conclusion that Job draws, are those the right conclusions? And and then you'll have to ask yourself this question, do I share some of the same conclusions that Job came to? Is what he's saying similar to what I think, what I believe, what I've concluded? That's what we're going to discover today as we go back to the book of Job. And I'm praying that God will meet each of us in a very personal way today as we talk about making sense of suffering. So would you join me today in the book of Job? Today, Job chapters 8 and 9. Job chapters 8 and 9. If you have a Bible and you're looking for Job, you open your Bible to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms. It's the book right before Psalms is the book of Job And today, we pick up in chapter 8, where Pastor John left off, and we will cover, Lord willing, chapter 8 and 9. I want to talk to you about making sense of suffering. But before I do, can I just pray for our time in God's Word, for your heart and mine as we hear this? Father, it's been good to stand and sing with these brothers and sisters in the faith. You've heard us affirm our confidence in you, You are a very present help in time of trouble. And we would like to say we will not fear when the earth shakes and gives way. But sometimes, Lord, we do fear and we shake and we give way. So I would pray for any and all of us who at times are trying to make sense of suffering, ours and others, and are struggling to do so. I pray that as we listen in on Job and his words, that your word would speak to us. And that today you would meet us in a personal way that draws us closer to yourself and your heart and also makes us better able to help those around us in their time of need. So I pray that, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We pick up uh, the the book of Job in chapter 8. And as we do, we hear one of Job's three friends who've come to comfort him. We hear one of them speak up for the first time, a man named Bildad. And Bildad's been sitting there and he's listened to Job as Job has lashed out at God for being cruel to him. And Bildad thinks Job has gone too far. So he speaks up to defend God's honor. Listen to what he says in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Like you're just blowing hot air, Job. Verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? Those are rhetorical questions, right? They, they, they imply the answer is, of course not. Does God pervert justice? No. Does does the Almighty pervert what's right? No, he's saying. So he he comes at Job and says, Job, you're wrong to question God's justice and his fairness. And then in verses 4 through 7, Bildad now tells how he makes sense of Job's situation. He tells you how he makes sense of suffering. Listen to what he says, verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Remember, Job lost all 10 of his kids. So he's saying, if your kids have sinned, then look what happens. God delivers them into the hand of their transgression. What he's saying is, your children died because of their sin. God found them out. God knew that they had been doing the wrong thing, and he brought it, brought it down on them. He delivered them into the hand of their transgression. And then he goes on in verse five and six and seven to say here's the solution job because god dealt this look at look at verse five if you will seek god and plead with the almighty for mercy if you are pure and upright surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation and though your beginning was small your latter days will be very great see what he's saying he's saying suffering causes because of sin but job If you repent of your sin, if you get right with God, he'll make things right for you. He'll restore you, and your end will be better than your beginning. So how does Bildad make sense of suffering? He says this, if you're suffering, it has to be
1: somehow because you've sinned. God does bad things to people who do bad things.
0: Well, he goes on now in verses 8, 9, and 10 to bolster what he just said, to back up what he just said by saying, Job, everybody knows this is true. Like, we've known this for generations. Look at verse 8. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they, the the ones who've come before us, will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? See what he's saying there? He says, Job, what I'm telling you is what people have known for generations. If you're suffering, you can trace it back to your sin. That's what we've all known. Our fathers knew this. Our fathers' fathers knew this. If you slide down to verse 20, you see how he summarizes it all. Verse 20, he says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man. Note the word blameless there. That's going to show up several times today. God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of the evildoers. So he's saying, look, Job, God's not taking your hand right now. In fact, he's judging you with a heavy hand. Because God doesn't take the hand of transgressors. And God does not reject a blameless man. So since God is not holding your hand, but he's dealing with you with a heavy hand, it must be you're a transgressor. You're not blameless, Job. You're suffering because of your sin. That's how Bildad makes sense of Job's situation. Now, there are many, many people in the world today and in generations past that would essentially agree with Bildad. They would essentially say, well, he kind of said it a little bit harsh, but, you know, fundamentally, he's right. God is a God of justice And so if you're suffering, you got to trace it back to something unjust that you've done.
1: But Job's not having it. Job hears all that, and he's not convinced.
0: In fact, in chapter 9, Job goes on to say, Bildad, let me tell you how I make sense of my suffering. I disagree with you. I don't think you've gotten it right. So now Job tells Bildad and his other friends what he thinks is right. And so as we go through chapter 9, we hear Job's answer. And what we're going to find is that Job, as he's wrestled with this, as he tried to make sense of his suffering, Job comes to three conclusions, three things that he thinks are true. And we're going to hear him say each of these three things. And as we do, I want you to be listening and asking yourself this question. Does Job have that right? I mean, he's, he's a godly man. He's a blameless man. We're told that at the beginning Is he right on this? Are his his conclusions one you would come with? Would you share his conclusions in any way? So let me show you them, the three conclusions. We'll look at them one at a time. The first conclusion that Job draws, we find in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 9. And his first conclusion as he tries to make sense of his own suffering is this. It's not fair. Life is not fair. It's just not fair. That's what Job begins to say. Look at verses 1 to 3. You'll see how he launches into this. He says to Bildad, then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, with God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He's saying it's unfair. It's not a fair fight to try to contend with God. You won't win one in a thousand arguments with him. Okay? Just not fair. It's not a fair fight. And he says, God overpowers people. It's, this is not a fair conversation. This is not two equals here. God overpowers. In fact, he goes on in verses 4 down through verse 10 to make that case. Look at it, verse 4. He, speaking of God, is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He, speaking of God, who removes mountains, and they know it not. When he overturns them in in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, those are two constellations, the Pallades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. See what He's saying. It's just not fair. You can't contend with God. God's the one who shakes up the earth and takes down the mountains. You're going you're to talk to him? You're going to argue your case with him? God is the one who stops the sun from shining. And he puts the stars where they are. You're going you're to take him on? God is the one, verse 10, who does great things.
1: Great things. So Job is saying, look. God is so big.
0: I'm so small. Things are going to happen. In fact, God is just going to do what he's going to do, and nobody can stop him. That's what he goes on to say in verses 11 to 15. Look at verse 11. Behold, he, God, passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Verse 13, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Verse 14, how then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Do you see what he's saying there? Even look at verse 15, though I am in the right. Does Job think that he's in the right? Well, yes, he does. He says, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. It's not a fair fight. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. So what he's saying is this. God is so big, you can't fight God. You know, we have a saying, you can't fight city hall. Job says, yeah, but you can't fight the Lord of all. He's going to do whatever he wants to do, and nobody can stop him. Even if you're right, You're going to end up being in the wrong. God's going to do what God's going to do, and that's the way it
1: is. It's not fair, but that's the way it is. So, Job's first conclusion is it's not fair. Let me ask you have you ever felt that way about situations in your life? You ever looked around and thought, you know what's happening to me? It's not fair. I can do nothing about it, but it's not fair. I imagine some of the
0: people in Ukraine who are fleeing for their lives as bombs rain down on their cities are saying, I, I didn't ask for this. I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. Life isn't fair. Gerald Sitzer sure fell in that way. The man who's who lost in one day his wife, his mother, and a baby daughter. Eight months after the accident, he had to go to trial because they were bringing the drunk driver in on felony counts of drunk driving. So Gerald Sitzer had to show up and face this man who had killed his his wife, his mother, and his daughter. Dr. Sitzer's attorney said to him, this is going to be an open, shut case. Don't worry about it when they got there, it was interesting, the defense attorney for the man who had driven the car that caused the wreck, the defense attorney argued that they could not prove that he was actually the one who was driving the car. You see, he was in the car and his wife had been in the car and they were both thrown from the car in the accident and she died. So the attorney argued the state has to prove that it was actually him and not his deceased wife who was driving the car. Now, there were witnesses called who were bystanders at that wreck who heard the man say after the wreck, I was driving, I didn't know. They heard him say that, but the defense attorney was able to cast enough suspicion on their testimony that the judge acquitted the driver of all charges of felony drunk driving. Gerald Sitzer said he walked out of the courtroom that day in in shock. And he said, The travesty of the trial seemed to be a symbol of the injustice of the accident. It's just not fair. You ever felt that way? Job did. Gerald Sitzer did. Well, if you draw that conclusion, it can easily lead to a second conclusion. If we go back to our text in verses 11, or excuse me, in verses 16 to 31, we find a second conclusion that Job draws. And it's this, God doesn't seem to care. So not only is it not fair, not only is it not fair, but to compound that, God doesn't seem to care that it's not fair. God doesn't seem to care about me. That's what Job begins to pour out As you look at verses 16 down through 31, look at verse 16. Job says this, If I summoned him, speaking of God, if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Verse 17, For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. The Hebrew words translated without cause means for no reason. Like for nothing. Verse 18. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. Those are pretty strong words. He's saying, God doesn't care about me. He's crushing me. Doesn't even let me catch my breath. Look what he goes on to say in verse 19. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, he says that again. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, catch this, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Three times in those verses, Job uses the word blameless. Did you notice that? Look at it with me in verse 20. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Verse 21, I am blameless. Verse 22, he destroys destroys both the blameless and the wicked. See what he's saying? He doesn't care. Like, I actually am blameless. I'm not guilty of this stuff. But he destroys the blameless and the innocent. He doesn't care. In fact, in verse 23, listen to what he says here. When disaster brings sudden death... He, speaking of God, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Whoa, those are stinging words. He's saying God mocks the calamity of the innocent. He doesn't care. And that leads to despair. Look what Job goes on to say, verse 24. The earth is given into the the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, who is it then? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of my suffering. For I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow Cleanse my hands with lie, yet you, speaking of God, you plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes abhor me. He's just saying it's hopeless. God, you don't seem to
1: care. Life's not fair, you don't seem to care. Let me ask you, have you ever felt that way? Maybe you've never said it as strongly as Job says it, but have you ever thought
0: in your heart, God, From all I'm seeing, it doesn't seem to me like you care very much about this. Doesn't seem like you care. Do you know Jesus' disciples thought that at times? Mark chapter 4 tells us a time when they got into the boat. Remember this? They're going across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is exhausted. He falls asleep in the stern of the boat, and this storm comes up, begins to swamp the boat, water pouring over the sides, and Jesus is still sleeping. And they wake him, they rouse him. And do you remember what they said? They said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're perishing? Doesn't
1: seem like it is. Seems like you're asleep. Job felt that. Disciples felt that. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like, God, I'm just not sure you really care? Well, if you come to that conclusion, if you think life is not fair, God doesn't seem to
0: care. It's going to lead you to a third conclusion. And this is the darkest of them all. It shows up in verses 32 to 35. And the third conclusion is this, I don't have a prayer. If life's not fair and God doesn't care, then I don't have a prayer. Like, I got no hope. I got nothing. I don't have a prayer. Listen to how Job expresses that in verse thirty-two: "For he, God, is not a man that I might answer him; that we should come to come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Let him who takes his rod, let him take his rod away from me, and let and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him." For I am not so in myself. Do you see what he's saying? I don't have a prayer. All what I wish for is that there was somebody. and He calls him an arbiter. Do you see that? In verse 33, there is no arbiter. The word means a referee or a mediator. Like there's nobody, there's no go-between that can come between me and God. He's so far up there. He's so much bigger than I am. I don't have anybody who can lay their hand on both of us and bring us together. I've got nobody that can make it so I can speak without feeling terrified. I don't have a prayer. So those are the
1: conclusions Job draws. It's not fair. God doesn't seem to care. I don't have a prayer. What are we to make of his conclusions?
0: Like, like how, how do you put that together? Are any of those ones you say, well, I kind of think he might be onto something here? What do you do with those conclusions? Well, one thing you have to do is remember, Job doesn't have what you have and what I have. For one thing, he doesn't know the backstory of what's going on, right? He's clueless about what we know as readers from chapter 1. He doesn't know any of that. But even more, Job doesn't have the scriptures. As best we can tell, he lived before the time the Bible was written. Like He's way back there in history. So he doesn't have what we have. He doesn't have access what you have access to. He doesn't have information that you and I have. So when we evaluate his conclusions, we need to hear him charitably. We need to care about him. We need to listen carefully. But then we need to take what he says and evaluate it in the light of what we know from Scripture. We have to look at the big sweep of Scripture. And when you do that, when you evaluate Job's three conclusions in light of all the Bible says, I think you have to modify his conclusions. There has to be some corrections made. So what I want to do as we wrap up is I want to take you through all three conclusions and show you how the rest of Scripture comes and fills in some things and gives some corrections to what Job said. So let's start with the first one, it's not fair. As you read the rest of scripture, you'd have to modify that a bit because I think we can say this, a better conclusion would be this, it's not fair
1: yet, it's not fair yet. You see, the Bible does say God is a God of justice,
0: that God loves justice, that God is for righteousness. The Bible tells us that, But it says to us that he doesn't always bring justice as quickly as we would wish or as quickly as we think it should come. See, Bildad Bildad thought God is a God of justice, so he brings it right away. You sin, you suffer. That's what Bildad thought. But you read out the rest of Scripture and you find out, no, that's not true. God is a God of justice and he'll bring in justice, but he he doesn't do it right away. Let me give you a couple passages that show you that. Psalm 73, Psalm 73, the psalmist is struggling because he looks around and he says, I don't get it. The wicked seem to prosper, like they're living large, they're loving life, and I'm over here trying to do it God's way, and I'm getting pummeled day after day, and I'm tempted to say, why am I doing this?
1: He says, but then I went into the house of God. And I saw their end. I saw that there's coming a day
0: when justice is coming their way. And he ends by saying, so as for me, the nearness of God is my good. You see, what he realized is that he was looking for justice now. But he realized justice will come
1: in God's time. It's not fair yet. Let me give you another one.
0: In Luke 13, Jesus asked the people around him, listen to these verses. Luke 13, I'm reading verses 1 to 5. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate had killed these guys. Verse 2, And he, Jesus, answered them and said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Bildad would have said, Yes. Jesus says, No. Listen to what he says. Were they worse sinners because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Bildad would have said yes. Jesus says no. Verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. See what he's saying? He says bad things can happen to people. And it's not necessarily because they're worse than other people. So you don't, don't sit around and judge them. In fact, you better get your own life right because justice will come one day. The Bible tells us that there will be a day when God comes to judge the earth, the intents of our hearts, the silent words that we've spoken, the actions that we do. And on that day, there will be full justice, complete justice. There will be justice on those Sabaean and Chaldean raiders who killed Job's servants and stole all his livestock and seemed to get away with it. There will be justice for a drunk driver who took the life of a wife and a mother and a daughter. There will be justice for dictators who order their armies to shell helpless populations. There will be justice. There will be justice on Satan who's behind all the carnage behind it all. There will be justice. So the Bible tells us, hey, listen, hang on. Justice is coming. In fact, you better get your own life right. Because justice will come one day. It's not fair yet, but oh, justice will come. That's the first conclusion and correction. Here's the second one. Second correction would be this. Job said, God doesn't seem to care. The correction that the rest of the Bible would give us is this. God doesn't seem to care, but he does. Right? There's going to be times when you look around and you're going to think, I don't think God cares. But the Bible tells you over and over, but he does. We know that in the book of Job from the first chapter, right? Job chapter 1. We're told that the very first verse, there was a man in the, name, in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless. And in verse 8, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless. God cared about Job. He picked him among everybody else and said, look at Job. God cared about Job. But here's the harsh reality. God doesn't always spare those he cares for. He didn't spare Job, but he cared for Job. So he knows that he, he cared about him from the beginning of the book, and then you come to the end of the book, and then you know that he cares again. He cares enough at the end of the book to have an extended conversation with Job. Like almost nobody in the Bible, very few people get the length of conversation face to face that Job gets. And it's true, it's true. He puts Job in his place by asking him questions Job can't answer but he also puts Job's heart back in the right place by reminding Job, Job, I've got this. I'm here. I care about you. I'm running the world, Job. I know what I'm doing. And at the very end of the book, he restores to Job his health and his wealth and even a family. And at the very end of the book, he even vindicates Job in front of his three buddies. He, has, he says, Job spoke more accurately than you three guys. And he has Job offer a sacrifice for his friends. Oh, he cares about Job. So the, the message is this even when you don't see it, even when it doesn't seem that way, you and I hang on to say, it doesn't feel that way right now, but God cares. you know the name William Cowper? William Cowper, he wrote some hymns that you've sung. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. He wrote another hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. If you know anything about Cowper's life, you know that he struggled mightily. Bouts of depression, tried to kill himself several times. He, he lived through dark nights in his soul. He had mental health issues. He had emotional issues. He loved God, but he was a troubled man. And at times, it didn't seem God cared. God wasn't healing him. God wasn't making it better. So he wrote a poem that became a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And one of the stanzas, one of the hymn stanzas, says this. These are Cowper's words. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Isn't that interesting? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, by what you sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, you look around and it seems he's frowning. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Cowper says sometimes it doesn't seem like he cares, but he does. And that brings me to the third conclusion that needs a bit of a correction. Job says, I don't have a prayer. But you read the rest of the Bible, and you find out that he did. I would put the correction this way. I don't have a prayer, but Jesus mediates for me. Jesus comes. Jesus mediator. Job was right to want an arbiter. Remember how he said, "Oh that there was an arbiter to come between God and me." There is one. God sent one. 1 Timothy 2:5 says, "There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all." Not only did Jesus come to put his hand between God the Father and us, Jesus came to show us the Father's heart by dying in our place. He died for your suffering, but he also died for your sin. Because nobody in this room is completely blameless before God. And he now brings us to God. In a moment here, we're going to gather and have the Lord's table. And it's a reminder that Jesus is a mediator who gave his life to bring you close to God. And if you're here today and you're feeling like God doesn't care, here is the ultimate statement that he cares. He gave you his son. And now he says to you, don't you ever doubt that I love you. Come close. And if you've never yet put your faith in Jesus as the arbitrator who brings you to God, who forgives your sin, do that today. Cry out to him right where you sit right now and say, Jesus, I need you to be my arbitrator, my mediator. Bring me to your father. I believe in you. I trust in your death and your resurrection. You see, you may not have a prayer all by yourself, but you have
1: Jesus. And he mediates for you. So on those times when you're trying to make sense of suffering, you like
0: Job have to bring your questions to God and he'll listen. Isn't it amazing that God let Job's words be in the Bible? I mean, some of it's a bit, you know, needing some correction and God still said, "Let's put it in the Bible." He lets us voice our questions, our concerns, and yet he moves to bring us to himself. Gerald Sitzer found that out true. At the end of his book, the last chapter is called Heritage in a Graveyard. And he says that when he and his family visit Lyndon, Washington, my wife's hometown, they go to the graveyard and they look at those three grave markers, one for his wife, one for his mom, and one for his baby daughter, Diana Jane, and they grieve But he says, we no longer grieve with no hope. Let me just read to you a paragraph that he writes at the very end of his book. Sitzer writes this, Above all, I have become aware of the power of God's grace and my need for it. My soul has grown because it has been awakened to the goodness and the love of God. God has been present in my life these past three years, even mysteriously in the accident. God will continue to be present to the end of my life and throughout all eternity. God is growing my soul, making it bigger, and filling it with himself. My life is being transformed. Though I have endured pain, I believe that the outcome is going to be wonderful. See, this side of heaven, you will never be able to fully make sense
1: of suffering but you can still fully trust the one who can let's pray
0: father we we come to your word with reverence and we hear job's word words with kindness we've never lived through his life we've never experienced what he went through and so we do not sit here in judgment of him in fact if anything we come and we say oh lord Help me in the moments that I need to, to at least turn to you like Job did. But then we thank you that Jesus has come, that your word has been given, and that we know that you will one day bring in justice and that right now you care for us and that through Jesus we have an arbiter, a mediator with you. So help us in the midst of it when we're trying to make sense of it all to turn to you and find your grace. Make our souls bigger
1: and fill them with yourself.